Uh, okay, so we're, we're uh, moving forward in terms of the study of the law, and we're actually coming to, to the conclusion, but it's interesting as I look at some of these passages and I start studying the passages, then I want to get more into the passage. So that's what slows us down. We probably could have finished this uh, earlier but, uh, or sooner. But um, when I talk about the law no longer as a code to live by, I'm saying that the Mosaic law is valuable as a teacher. It's the word of God. Uh, it's the most important legal law code uh, and the best law code that is found in the world. Right? Uh, there's beauty in it. It's a revelation of God's character and his nature. What I'm saying, though, is that the Mosaic law as uh, a requirement for us to obey in the commandments that are, uh, that in terms of being obligated, that's no longer the case. It's no longer a code by which we must conduct our lives. So why do I think that? And that's what this section uh, is about. So first of all, Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Um, so you can turn there in your Bibles, if you like, where Paul says, uh, for Messiah is the end of the law, for all who believe, Romans uh, ten, t- uh, chapter 10. Of course, that's like the heart and soul of the book of Romans 9, 10, 11 that deals with God's purpose, plan uh, with regard to the Jewish people. At the MJAA, I had an opportunity to teach on these three chapters. That's what my subject was about, and it was uh, just an incredible amount of fun to focus just on the three chapters and interact with everyone who is there. And chapter 10, of course, um, uh, is where this is found. So, brothers, my heart's desire, verse 1, and prayer to God for the Jewish people is that they might be saved. I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. See, Paul is really concerned with a proper understanding of God's word. Their zeal is wrapped up in gaining God's favor through obedience to the law. And he's saying they're misunderstanding God's word, they're misunderstanding the purpose of the law. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God. It's a gift. And they sought to establish their own righteousness uh, by obeying the law and thereby uh, earning it. They did not, therefore, submit themselves to God's righteousness which is a righteousness that is conveyed to us by grace and not a righteousness that can be attained or acquired through uh, our personal efforts or choices. Why is this? He says, because Messiah is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who has faith, who believes. So now the phrase end of the law, telos namu, telos is the word for end. And namu is the word, namas is the Greek word for for law. So there are three different ways that this phrase uh, can be understood. Uh, First of all, it can be understood, the word telos can mean aim or goal. And in many messianic circles, that is what is generally presented. That the the phrase means aim or goal. Messiah is the aim of of the law. He's the goal of the law. Not the end in terms of its termination, but merely its goal or, uh, or aim. And so the idea is that Messiah is the aim or goal of the law, or everything in the law tended toward the coming of Messiah. And that's certainly true. This is not untrue. This is true. Everything in the law 
does point to Messiah. That's why he says, I came not to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He fulfills it. And as I was sharing, to fulfill doesn't just mean to obey. Because if that was the case, there were laws that were not applicable to Messiah that he doesn't have to obey, such as the sacrificial system. He doesn't have to offer any sacrifices because he doesn't have any sin. And he never had had, uh, violated any of his promises to others. So he never offered a sacrifice. All the times he's teaching in the temple, we don't see him sacrificing. Even Passover, he offers himself as a lamb. He never sacrifices. And that's because he doesn't have to obey those laws because those are laws that are dependent upon failing to obey the law. But because he lives perfectly and uprightly, he doesn't have to do that. Or in the case of laws pertaining to marriage or laws pertaining to ownership. He doesn't own anything. So those laws are not laws that are directly applicable. But all the laws that are applicable, he certainly did obey. But fulfilling the law goes beyond that. It means he, he gives the fullest meaning to it. He um, not just does it, but he also gives significance to it. He enables the law to be meaningful, that it otherwise fails to be meaningful, uh, ultimately, without Messiah's um, connection to it. And so he comes to fulfill it, which means to fill it fully. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount gives us a glimpse into. He fills it fully by telling us the true intent and meaning of some of these laws. So when the law says, thou shalt not kill... Some might have contented themselves with the fact that I never violated that law because I never took someone's life. But Messiah is telling us, if that's how you understand that law, you haven't understood it. Well, who is he to tell us that's the way to understand it? That's why I said if if there is ever a, a manifestation of arrogance, it's certainly there where he says, I've come to fulfill it. And then he tells us that it's, I say to you, others have said, but I say to you, or you've heard it said, but I say to you, that when it says thou shalt not kill, it doesn't just mean don't take a life. But it means not to hate. And the degree to which, and we all have, hated, we violated that commandment. He even says, when we say raka, which is an Aramaic term denoting mental, lack of mental acuity, sort of saying you're stupid, you're not thinking right, you don't understand this. Empty-headed, you know. Um, so in that sense, when we have made fun of somebody in saying that they can't think right, we violated the commandment, that shall not kill. And then he says, when you say thou fool, where we criticize somebody's character, one is their ability to think well. The other is has to do with uh, sort of besmirching their character, he says, you violated that commandment. So he fills fully the commandment by saying it's not the minimum meaning, it's the maximum meaning that we have to be concerned about. And uh, so uh, when we say everything in the law tended toward the coming of Messiah, certainly his coming in terms of its promises but also with regard to the understanding most fully what the law is about. So this is true. 
The question is, does it only mean that? Uh, or is that Paul's intent? You know, the question is not, does the word mean aim or goal? It does mean that. Is that what Paul is referring to? Or is that only what Paul is referring to? So the law shows everyone they are sinners and prepares them for the coming of Messiah. So uh, the law shows everyone they're sinners, prepares them for the coming of Messiah, of which he's the aim and the goal. And that, I think, is true, true also. You know, the, all these things are sort of, you know, the scripture is about Messiah. That's what the scriptures are ultimately about. He is the heart and soul, the revelation of God's word. And so the law uh, was meant to, uh, to point us forward to him. And thus, all the things in the law and the prophets, uh, or many of them, are typologies of him. They're images of him in different ways, some very obviously, some subtly. But in this sense, he fully submitted himself. He was completely obedient to the law, and thus he reveals his sinlessness, and therefore can be the spotless lamb of God. So telos can mean he's the aim or goal, the thing to which the law pointed and comes to fruition in. It can mean that he's the fulfillment of it, but it also can mean he's the termination of it. And in this sense, it would mean that believe, for believers, the law no longer has legislative authority over us. It doesn't mean the moral realities of the law are not applicable or not praiseworthy or not something we can learn from. But it doesn't have any, law, any longer any legislative authority. Now, in some sense, that's very true because... Uh, adulterers, we don't stone. If we felt it had legislative authority over us, we would be concerned about that. But we don't concern ourselves with that. We would be concerned over the fact that the temple is not rebuilt because we would be saying we need to be offering the sacrifices. It has legislative authority, ceremonial authority, whatever you want to call it, and we need to sacrifice. But we don't feel that pressure... Uh, because they no longer has any legislative authority. So while all three views are possible, this third view really seems to be preferred. Because number one, it is the primary meaning of the word telos. Just like baptizo in the Greek, where you get the word baptize from. It can mean to sprinkle, and it is used that way in the book of Hebrews. It can mean to pour, but its primary meaning is to immerse. So it's interesting in the Messianic community, when we look at the word baptizo, we want to use the primary meaning because that is its Jewish uh, parallel. You know, that immersion that the Jewish people practiced, though what, with regard to people, was a full immersion. Although the utensils in the temple were sprinkled and weren't necessarily fully immersed. And the writer to the Hebrews makes that point. But um, the primary meaning is to immerse. The primary meaning of telos is end. And that's what Yeshua says on the cross. When he says it ends, he uses the word telos. It is finished. Which means he has brought the redemptive plan and purpose of God to its termination. Yes, his fulfillment. Yes, that's the aim of all scripture, but there is no other place in which we can find 
redemption, and forgiveness. Prior to his coming, there were a variety of sacrifices that temporarily covered sin. But now with his death, he brings all that to a termination. And he has finished, completed, terminated the plan of redemption. So the primary meaning, though, in all of this is end or termination. So when Paul says Messiah is the end of the law, while we can't be 100% sure because we have options, this, all three meanings fit. And given that this is its primary meaning, we can't ignore that reality. So to say that it means one of the secondary meanings is not as strong an argument especially when we can understand that it does, there is a sense in which the law has come to an end and has fulfilled its purpose as God's covenant with Israel. But in this context, Paul is discussing two opposing theological systems. He's telling us that there's one based on doing. He said, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. Paul is very concerned about this, that uh, his people... The reason they missed out on Messiah, that is at least the uh, majority of the nation of Israel, led by the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders, the reason they missed on this is because they sought to establish their own righteousness rather than to receive the righteousness that comes by God's grace provided by Messiah because Messiah is the end of the law. That's not the way to attain it, is his point. The other is based on believing. And that's why he says um, in verse 4, that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So those are just the two uh, approaches. And given that Paul is focusing on faith as the means by which one experiences the forgiveness of God, it would appear that this uh, would be what Paul is saying. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And faith being understood as trusting and relying upon God uh, to exercise his grace, to be sure. Okay, so now in Galatians chapter 2, um, so there's a second passage to look at. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Messiah Yeshua. Okay, so that's a very powerful statement. But um, now, if we compare this to some other things Paul has said, we'll look at the Galatians passage in a moment, but if you look, for example, in this section, Romans 6 and 7, chapter 7 is very much parallel to what goes on in Galatians chapter 2. But in Romans chapter 6, for example, Paul says in verse 2, we have died to sin. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But then when you turn to chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, he says, so then, oh, well, he, he concludes an example. He says, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Messiah that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. So he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, we died to sin. Then the very next section He talks about dying to the law. And then this raises the question. And this is what comes up in Romans. 
if we've died to sin and we have died to the law, are we then to conclude that the law is sin? That's what Paul is anticipating and expecting people to conclude by him. If we've died to sin and we've died to the law, it's almost like these are parallel. He then is thinking about, are people thinking then that we're to conclude the law itself is synonymous to sin? And his answer to that question is no. The law is the law sin, Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 12. He, expl- he responds to that. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He says in verse 7, certainly not. The law is not sin. Indeed, he says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And now we know he's not just talking about the principle of law. He's got to be talking about the Mosaic law because he then says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. So he's, he's quoting the, one of the Ten Commandments. So he's got in his mind, though it may, we may not want to just limit this to the Mosaic law, but it certainly involves the broader principle of law as a means to gaining God's favor. That is, we might say today, we don't talk like that. Today we talk about works gaining God's favor. But, we, but that's, they're synonymous because obeying the law is a work element. But we know he's talking about the law because he's just quoted one of the Ten Commandments. So it at least must be speaking about the Mosaic Law, but he probably has in mind something the Mosaic Law uh, includes, which is the whole idea of works righteousness, we might, we might speak of. So is the law sin? He says in Romans 7, verse 7 to 12, no, it's not. And then he tells us uh, in verse, what is it, 14? Uh, no, not verse, uh, verse 12. So then, he says, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, the commandment is righteous, and the commandment is good. So the law cannot be sin, and not only is it not something, it is something else. It is holy, it is righteous, it is good. Okay, so in chapter 6, I'm just putting it in context, Romans seven twelve in context. In chapter 6, he was saying we've died to sin. He talks about that reality. Then in Romans 7, he says we've also died to the law. And so the question he's now thinking that others might be asking, since we're dead to both of these things, is the law equivalent to sin? And he's telling us, no, it's not. In fact, he goes on to say the law is holy, righteous, and good. So what is the problem? But notice what Paul says the law does do in this section. He says, first of all, in verse 7, it reveals sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No. But indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Now, he's not saying that sin would not have existed before. The, The Gentiles are sinners, and they know what sin is. What he's saying is they we he would not have known the greater depth and significance of sin had he not known the law. Because the law spells it out. The Gentiles, that's one of the problems they have. They don't have the law, so they don't have God's commandments. So they're sort of left to their conscience. Some contexts it works well. Some contexts it does not. 
So they didn't have a law saying thou shalt not kill. But they had a conscience, and they knew they were violating their conscience when they were killed. Now, the more you kill, perhaps you sear your conscience. That's true. <coughs> but nevertheless, there is a sense about sin that we all have in different things. Even the thief feels violated when someone steals from him. And he knows no one should steal from me, even if he goes out and steals and doesn't care. So he has a sense of the wrongness of stealing. But for Paul, he doesn't have to rely on his feelings. He doesn't have to rely on his conscience. Because as a Jew, the law says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. So for him, he knows sin and wouldn't know it as discreetly had he not had it. He's not saying he wouldn't have known sin at all, but he would not have had the same clarity about sin had it not been for the fact that he was given the law. So he's saying that's a good thing. The law spells it out. So I know when the law says don't go through a stop sign, that's a good thing. It'll keep me from hurting somebody, and it will keep me from being seen as a lawbreaker. You know, so it's a good thing to know. It also, the law served to reveal the power of sin, he says, in verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, chapter 7. Because he says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. So in other words, he's not saying sin doesn't act, but it doesn't act as powerfully because we're not as aware. So now he's saying the law really reveals its power, and it's telling me that it kills me. Before, maybe I thought it just rendered me not such a good person. But now he knows if I don't offer the sacrifice for it, I'm alienated from God. God will judge me, and one day I'll be separated from him. So now he gets a sense from the law, not only that the sin is a bad thing, it's a powerful thing. Because sin can use the law to bring sin to life. Before, sin, I didn't even know I was sinning. So it's almost like it's comatose. But now when the law says it, it brings it to an awareness. But not only that, it stirs up sin in me. And it's sort of like, you know, when you and your parents said, don't touch that. I never was thinking of touching it. But now, I'm thinking about it. So the law served to stir up the power of sin. Didn't make it powerful, but it stirred it, you know. So it reveals sin's very, very powerful, and it has very destructive capabilities. But notice this in verse 11. He's not saying that that it is, uh, he's not saying it's the law that made him sin. It's sin that caused him to break the law. The law is holy, just, and good. There's nothing sinful about the law. The law stands as a, an objectively. It's sin in us that is the problem. The law is the revelation of God. The law reveals the holiness of God. The law reveals the power of sin. The law is warning us of all kinds of stuff. The problem is sin sort of uses the law for its own benefit to make us worse. So in in verse 11, he says, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded me by the commandment, deceived me. 
And through the commandment, it is sin that put me to death. The law didn't put me to death. Sin did. But the law was used for that purpose by sin. And we're already alienated from God, so we're already dead, right? We were dead in the garden. Now the law comes, it reinforces that reality. And in that sense, it makes it, uh, sin is made more powerful. No, remember the very beginning, you cannot separate the law. We can do that for discussion of the different kinds of laws. But when we obey all the law but miss one, we're guilty of it all. So Paul's not making any distinctions. So similarly, um, he would be saying if we go without ever sacrificing, you know, that's a ceremonial commandment. Um, it'll stir up the guilt. We know we violated God's command that says offer the sacrifice. You know? So no, we're not talking about any particular law. We're talking about the law as an entity. But the law made sin to become utterly sinful, Paul says. He says that in verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? He says, by no means. The law did not become death for me. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, so, so that sin could be seen for what it really is, it produced death in me through what was good. Sin produced death in me through what was good. And he says, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. (laughs) So it's like, so that sin might be seen for what it really is. It is truly sinful. It is truly dangerous. It is more dangerous than we could ever imagine. The law served to make that more uh, clear to us. And the sacrifices, the substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice of the blood of an animal temporarily can address this problem. And which points to, which comes to the first point, earlier point, tell us the goal, the aim, the, the fulfillment. It points to the need for the Savior to come to put an end to the impact of sin because we're dead to sin through Messiah, in Messiah, and to set the law straight for us so that it no longer continues to work sin utterly toward us. No, I don't think it applies only because when he uses the term law, I think he means not less than the Mosaic law, but more than the Mosaic Law. Any kind of legal um, thinking of works righteousness. It's still applicable to them if they think that through their goodness... No, no, but listen now. No, but he's talking about two things almost at once. He's talking about the Mosaic Law and its role. But he's also talking more broadly about the this suggestion, a principle that suggests that I can gain victory over sin 
by doing right things. Whether those right things are spelled out in the law, such as not murdering, or right things that are not so clearly spelled out for the law, but conscience we know is right. So Paul's sort of speaking to both ends. And keep in mind, the Gentiles in the church, would, in the congregation in Rome, would not be ignorant of the law because it, it takes up so much time. In, you know, they don't have a new covenant scripture, right? This is a letter to the believers. And those probably, if we, if we think this through, probably the believers in Rome are there because of what happened on the day, day of Pentecost, Acts 2. So probably Jewish people were in Jerusalem, Acts 2, came to faith because of the apostles, go back to Rome, establish a body, Gentiles respond to this small group of Jewish believers, they're introduced to the law, they're introduced to the scriptures, and now they may have had some of Paul's letters if they made it that far, but probably not, because no one's gotten there yet. Really, Let's move forward. So over here it says the law was powerless to correct the destructive nature. So it's interesting as Paul deals with the power of sin and how it used the law for its purpose to magnify it. He finally says, so, um, you know, who is to deliver me from this whole bondage? And he says in verse 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah. And so it is he by telling us that he's saying the law was powerless to correct the destructive nature of sin, but Messiah isn't. And in him, we can die to sin. Not that we'll become sinless, sinlessly perfect, but certainly our sin is being dealt with and we're being conformed into the image of his son and we're becoming more righteous individuals by the grace of God. Okay, so, um, so now let's just turn our attention to Galatians chapter 2. This was meant to be sort of like an intro, <laughs> you know, to Galatians 2. We won't take as much time in Galatians 2. Um, we may not cover it all tonight. But this is good. That's why we're here. So we, <clears throat> so we can dis- discuss these things a little more fully than we might. Okay, so let's move on here to Galatians if we can. Galatians 2.16, uh, Paul says, uh, We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Messiah. So, uh, now, many believe, this is kind of an interesting thing to think about, many believe that verses 15 to 21 is the continuation of Paul's message to Peter in front of the entire congregation in Antioch. Sometimes this is missed. I take it that way. We can't be absolutely sure, but I'll give you my reasons. In verse 11, it says, When Peter came to Antioch, Paul, now writing, I opposed Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. He said, before certain men came from James, Yaakov, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, it doesn't just mean they sat at the same table. You know, the whole implication of eating with the Gentiles was he's eating unclean food by, virtue, by uh, Levitical standards, which seems to, although I wouldn't you know, press this, but it seems to, although some people don't want to make a deal of it, but I think it seems to connect to the vision that Peter has when he's told to go see Cornelius. And I do find it interesting that, and you know, we shouldn't just order, too quickly dismiss this, Paul, uh, 
Peter is called to Cornelius. Now, God could have easily had an angel said, come to him and say, God wants you to talk to Cornelius. God wants you to speak to Gentiles. God wants you to go to the Romans. I mean, he could have done this a thousand ways, right, we can think of. But the way he does it is to have unclean animals in a vision appear to him, and then he's told to rise up and eat. Now, Peter's not a religious man. He's a fisherman. But he says, I've never eaten anything unclean all my life. Now, that doesn't make him religious. It's only that Jews generally, culturally, certainly in the first century, would not have been predisposed to do that. But certainly some Jews did. You know, I mean, during the Hellenistic era, right, during uh, the things of Hanukkah and Antiochus Epiphanes, Jews were sacrificing pigs. Some of them didn't care. Some Jews were being, uh, I don't know what the term is, but uh, going through certain um, surgical procedures to put back the foreskin of their, uh, of their private parts because they wanted to participate in the Greek games, which was done in the nude, and they didn't want to be seen as being circumcised. I don't know what they did. I don't know. We're, we're not, all I'm saying is there are many Jews for whom the law and the Jewish identity was, you know, was being ignored. Not for Peter, though not religious. That's my only point I'm making. This. Hold on a minute. Not, he was not a Pharisee. He's a fisherman. But the normal cultural thing in Israel would be Jews aren't going to be, you're not going to be in a Jewish area and there's going to be pigs and unclean food and stuff. So it would be, you know, typically. You didn't, ha- you didn't have to work at it, right? It, I know, but it is interesting that it has to do with the issue around the table. Now, if you want to just say it's a term for fellowship, I can understand that. But he is eating with them. Well, the law doesn't say you can't eat with Gentiles. It, you know, it doesn't say you can't sit down with them. Uh, I mean, here, Boaz marries one, right? It could have been part of the oral tradition, but, but it doesn't really matter because what Paul says is he was wrong in that he was not just fellowshipping, he was eating with them. Paul would not have been concerned about the fact that he's eating with them and then not eating with them if it wasn't because he was scrupulous about what he was eating or, or what he was not eating. I think it's really um, easily to see that that was what Paul is talking about. That when he was with the Gentiles, he wasn't just palling with them. There's nothing wrong with that. There wasn't anything. Gentiles could go into the temple. They couldn't go into the, they could go into the uh, court of the Gentiles. And they mingled with Jews. And they could do business with them. And they were certainly already worshiping together in sanctuaries, that wasn't the issue. The issue, I think, is that he's eating with them. And now when certain Jews, who are believers, come up to Antioch, they're not concerned that they're in the same room worshiping or even sitting at the table. I think they saw that Peter felt, I shouldn't eat this because of these guys who are here, because they'll see that I'm not eating kosher. I, that, I mean, what, what else can it be? I mean, okay, maybe we can contemplate it, but that seems to be obvious. But here's the thing, as we move forward through this, and I was just making the connection. 
I, I, I know, but, but by this state, you know, and it's early, we've got Jews and Gentiles that are worshiping together in Antioch. And Peter evidently didn't feel weird about being with the Gentiles and eating with them. I think it means he's eating some of their food, which is not expected to have been eaten by Jews and might have been food that is contrary to the Mosaic law. And, and so now Paul says when these certain men came from James, Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, those that were more scrupulous about eating and obeying the law. And, but before that, evidently, Paul, uh, Peter was not so concerned about it. So then it says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So he's, doing, he's acting hypocritical. So what was hypocritical? Not just being with them and not being with them. It was, he was probably engaged with things that Gentiles did, that Jews didn't. He's eating with them, probably eating unclean food by, by way of Jewish and Mosaic standards. And then when the Jews comes, he says, I'm not, not going to do that anymore. Paul then, interestingly enough, accuses him of hypocrisy. And he even says Barnabas, who was with him on his first journey, fell prey to this as well. Then he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the good news. And we know what Paul means by the good news, the death, burial, resurrection of Messiah and the bringing of a lot to its termination and its fulfillment and its conclusion. And so, hold on. So he says, I said to Peter in front of them all. Now, the reason I'm just saying this is some scholars believe, that's verse 14, verse 15 to 21 is what he said to Peter in front of the entire congregation, their elders and congregants. So Paul is clear on what is right and wrong, and he said Paul and, uh, Peter and Barnabas, two stalwarts of the early believers, were in the wrong, and he was ready to speak out it publicly in front of everyone. And so I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew when you're with them. So how is it then that you are now trying to force Gentiles to follow Jewish ways? So that's, his, that's what he's saying is hypocritical. When you get to verse 14, 15, now the question is, is he still saying these words in front of the entire congregation, or are they reflections on the issue he just raised? I believe his conversation before Peter and the congregants continues. So that in verse 15, he's still speaking to Peter and in front of everybody. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What he means by sinners is ones without the law. He doesn't mean that Jews weren't sinners. Jews were sinners too. But, okay, but he's saying we're not like them who didn't have the law, which gave us direction. So then he says, no, we're, not, we're Jews by birth, not like the Gentiles who don't have the law. And we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Messiah. 
Now, I think all the way down to verse 21, Peter, Paul is continuing his statement. And the reason I think that is because in verse 3, he changes. Now it's like he's saying, now I'm talking to you guys. You know, the other was sort of like a historical interlude. When I saw Peter, the same issue came up with him and Barnabas. So it's a, it's a very serious one that has affected the leadership. And I addressed it with them, and it included all this stuff that he says up to verse 21. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, of course, there's no chapters in the, in the ancient text, right? So it's a scroll. When he says, you foolish Galatians, now he's, now he's back to his letter. That's what I think. There's difference of opinion, but I just wanted to try to explain how I see it. <laughs> I think that is how it is. But then, now I just want you to notice a couple of things that's, that's interesting about this section. First of all, notice verse 16. That's the verse I draw your attention to. Three times he focuses on faith in Messiah. He says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, one, but by faith in Messiah. Then he says, so we too have put our, here it is second time, our faith in Messiah. And then he says that we might be justified by faith in Messiah. Three times in one verse. So it's obvious he's making a contrast between the significance of faith in Messiah and the idea of law. Obeying, uh, being justified by law. Now, further, we find, now I believe the book of Galatians is Paul's earliest letter. It's his first letter. Most scholars believe that written about 45 uh, is when in, most scholars believe it was written, mid-40s. This is only 10 years after or so the time of Messiah. If that is true, this is the first time the word justified comes up in Paul's writings. Chapter 2, verse 16, is the first use of the word justify in the book of Galatians. And if Galatians is the earliest book that Paul wrote, then it's the first time he uses the term. So what's interesting about that is the very first letter he writes, he's already talking about justification by, by, through faith, you know, as opposed to the law. You can see where, you know, uh, where his focus is, right at the very outset. Isn't he 